Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. We're in the same passage that we have been in for the last three weeks. As I told you each Sunday, we're not going to be able to cover everything that's here. But I think we have, we have paused and waited deeply. And I trust this morning we will as well. If you haven't been here the last two weeks or even missed one, I would encourage you before you think we've left a lot out to go and listen to those sermons. We've talked a lot about our primary identity. It's the same for men and women, for husbands and wives. I'll repeat that again a bunch today. But we will move towards what is it that is different in terms of roles for the wife and for the husband. So let's hear from God's word, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Frequently when I do premarital counseling, and certainly this is before we had the union class, which is a wonderful class, I would ask the couple that would be getting married between five and 18 months, somewhere in there it seemed, to begin by defining the purpose of marriage. And I would tell them that I wanted them not to share their answer with one another, but at our next meeting, I would like for them to bring their answer. Now immediately you begin to see gender differences right there. Often the soon-to-be wife would come in with a piece of paper, white, typed, thoughtful, poetic, and often long. Sometimes when she pulled out her document, the fiance would look at me and her and begin to fidget. Sometimes they were honest. I didn't do it. It's, it's all in here, but I didn't get it down on paper. Sometimes they would pull out a napkin that honestly looked like the place they had just had lunch. A few notes scribble on, on the napkin. Sometimes I was surprised. It was a lot more thoughtful. I know those are stereotypes. But in every case, 100% of the time, 100% of the time, no one got the answer right. Not once, not one time in 28 years of ministry has anybody really ever nailed the answer. They got close, remnants, parts of it, but in the end, it always fell short. I want to make it really simple. Children, I want you to look at me right now. 
I love you, I love that. They did, they looked up. If I asked this question, some of them would know the answer right away. What is the chief end of man? Some would raise their hands and say, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If that is the chief end of man and children it is, it is also the chief end of marriage. Marriage exists to glorify God. Period. The problem we have so often is that our definition falls way short. It's centered on happiness. Actually, if someone said, honestly, they, they want to be happy in their marriage, they would actually be getting pretty close to the definition of marriage. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. God is deeply concerned about your happiness. I don't mean a shallow happiness. I mean a deep, eternal happiness. Some people say things like this, and it's very unbiblical. I want you to hear that. It's very unbiblical. God is not interested in your happiness. He's interested in your holiness. Show me where in the Bible it says that, and I'll preach it. But it doesn't. And some of you said it, I know. The reason it's unbiblical is it creates a false dichotomy between holiness and happiness. I promise you, if we truly are living the holy life, that Christ died for us to live, if we truly are living out of this primary identity where he calls us his holy people, we would be ultimately happy. I get the point, but the point is misleading. God is deeply interested in your happiness, and he is deeply interested in your marriage being happy. But the kind of happiness that God is talking about in marriage is not the kind of happiness that we typically think about in marriage. It's much deeper and much more beautiful. Downstairs this morning, I wanted a fresh count. The first place I went was to our library and bookstore. By the way, we have one. It's downstairs and it's fabulous. Matt Chandler, pastor of the village, says it's the best bookstore in Dallas. It's rich, it's beautiful, and the library's phenomenal too. I wanted to know how many books on marriage we have. I stopped counting at 35. And I've been told that those are the books that fly out of that bookstore the most. I'm not surprised. I want to read from the introduction of one of my favorite books on marriage. I'm going to read more than I normally would. And I'm warning you, it's just a few paragraphs. But Dan Allender has written this so beautifully. Dan's been here. Dr. Allender has been here. He's taught on marriage. Some of you have attended his intense workshops. But I want you to listen to what he says on the first page of his book about marriage. Marriages are under assault. Some suffer the tragedy of affairs, abuse, and divorce. Others endure the tedium of a relationship that is an institution and not a romance. Most of us who are husbands and wives feel an exhaustion that comes from the frenetic pace required to honor the competing loyalties of family, work, church, community, parents, friends, neighbors, and more. 
Under the weight of competing priorities, we often feel like passing couriers who can only wave and wish the other well. We do not like the growing distance, but we endure it as a reasonable necessity to get us through this, quote, busy time. No one plans on having an affair. No one plans at the beginning of their marriage to divorce. No one thinks they will be stuck in the doldrums of a passionless, convenient business arrangement that hides a bankrupt relationship. But it happens. Many couples who walk into Sunday morning church service are merely existing, not thriving in their marriages. Some spouses feel lonely, bored, empty, angry, afraid, or confused. They may look as if they know what to do and how to do it, but appearances are often deceiving, especially in marriage. And in this theme of sojourn, Peter takes on the life application of the roles of husbands and wives. And in our honest evaluation of our own sojourn, how often, if we're honest, is that journey depicted by moments of incredible high when there is this profound intimacy and love between us and our wife or us and our husband? But how often is that journey marked by true brokenness where husbands and wives are the longing to be married and the hole that feels like it's there? Or other broken relationships truly define dark seasons of this journey? Where is God in the midst of all that? Jim said it a minute ago, God hates divorce. He does, but it happens. God loves marriage. He invented it. It's his design. But it's only when we abide in his design that we truly experience the goal of marriage, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Allender says this near the end of his introduction, and then I'll stop reading from Allender. The Bible is neither a marriage manual nor a systematic statement of how to live. It is a love story revealing the intimate relationship between God and his people. This divine human marriage begins with fresh romance. Re-enter the Garden of Eden. Perfect romance. No sin. This divine human marriage begins with fresh romance, devolves into a divorce, and then ends with a wedding. The Bible's love story illumines the heart of our divine lover, capital L, exposes our spiritual adultery, and woos us with the wonder of our bridegroom's persistent, unending love. That is why this text is for everyone here, not just those who are married, Before I spend a few minutes talking about the roles of a wife and the roles of a husband, 
that Peter makes clear here, I want to spend a few minutes simply reminding us of what it is we have in common. This is not going to take very long, so if you're taking notes, write quickly and lean in, please. Here's what we have in common as men and women, as husbands and wives. First, we are created equal in the image of God, period. Did you hear me? We, men and women, are created equal in the image of God. Secondly, we who are in Christ have the same primary identity as all believers. My wife's primary identity is not my wife, and it is not a mom. It is a beloved child of the living God. And my primary identity is not husband and father and pastor. It's I'm a beloved child of the living God. Third, what we have in common is not just that we are created equally in the image of God, but that God is living in us. We have union with Christ. The Holy Spirit is inside me and inside my bride and inside of everyone who professes faith in Jesus. The power and ability to bring God glory exists because of that union. And that union will last forever. My union with my wife will not. My union with Christ will. That's primary. Fourth, created equal in the image of God, the same primary identity, union with Christ. Fourth, we have the same calling. And that calling, my friends, is to bring God glory and enjoy Him forever. Now there are, because of God's perfect and glorious design, different roles for wives and husbands. But they also have things in common. Three, very quickly, because this is really important. Number one, both of these roles require submission. It is equally difficult for the man to submit to the role he's called as it is for the women to submit. Now, right now, you might be like, no. Yes. Give me a chance. Give God's word a chance. Both roles require submission. Two, both of these roles are servant roles. Three, both of these roles are modeled perfectly by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So let me talk about the roles that God has given women. Peter says in verse 1, likewise. Remember, he's pointing, ladies, to your primary identity. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. What does that mean? Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, in a book downstairs called The Meaning of Marriage, writes an incredible chapter on this topic. Definitely worth reading. Some of what she says I want to, to highlight by way of the outline I'm going through. And here's why. She tells the story of her own journey in trying to understand what it meant to submit herself to her husband, 
Tim Keller. The way in which she studied through the Word of God, she, she began to see quickly that God had a definite plan for the way He designed marriage and the roles for husbands and wives. When Peter speaks about wives being subject to their husbands, what he ultimately is alluding to is this truth that women were created by God equal, same calling to bring God glory, but by playing a specific role is that of helper. If you go back to Genesis 2, verse 18, listen to what God says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the, that the man should be alone. This was the first time God said something wasn't good. I will make him a helper fit for him. What an amazing verse. Fit for him. Women, God did not create you to be the property of a man who simply says, this is what you must do because I don't want to do it. This is what you must do because that is beneath me. I'm using my headship, my God-given leadership to delegate, and this is what you should do. I don't want to do it. I'm not good at doing it. You do it. That is not the picture. The word helper that we, we have here is not the best word, to be honest with you, because it's much stronger. What God is teaching us here is that in his own perfect divinity, he said, it's not good for this man to be alone. So let's make for him a helper. The word actually used for helper here, most frequently in the Bible, is used for God himself. It's a significant word. It's a powerful word. Other places, it's used to describe military help where the reinforcements are coming without which the battle would be lost. And so Kathy Keller speaks about this passage and says, the word that means most to me as I think about submitting to my husband is the word or words, strong helper. When Peter talks about women being the, the weaker vessel, he is not implying anything other than the differences in physical reality. You actually are biologically stronger because you live longer than us. But you're not physically stronger. Some are, certainly. But you get the point. This is not in any way demeaning women. But in this idea of strong helper, something must take place. And this is what it is. A sacrificial submission and that's biblical. Many hate that. But if you take the word of God and you unfold the pages, you begin to see something that's quite beautiful. Jesus Christ practiced perfect sacrificial submission. The God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus is God volunteered to sacrifice in submission to his heavenly father. If you want to see where that's most beautifully coded, I think it's in Philippians 2. 
Philippians 2, Paul writing about Jesus, which actually became a song in which they sang about Christ, says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a, what? Servant, being born in the likeness of men. Women, God has called you to this role, which is not a demeaning role. It's not a dangerous role. It can be if there's abuse. I'll talk about that more in just a moment. But it is a beautiful role of where for the glory of God, you, this strong helper, united with your husband for the purpose of accomplishing this great purpose of marriage, to bring God glory and enjoy him forever. What does it not mean? It doesn't mean unconditional obedience to your husband. And men, if you think it does, you're sick. It's not funny. It doesn't mean unconditional obedience. It doesn't mean that we, that you would aid your husband in doing things that God forbids, whatever they might be. If it's to engage in something that's illegal or immoral, you are not to abide in that. If you are in a relationship in which you are being abused, be the strong helper that your husband needs. And if he has laid a hand on you, the strong help that he needs is for you to love him in his heart and have him arrested. And the courage to do that is great, so don't, don't stay in it alone. And husbands, if that's you, and right now there's a bit of rage and even judgment coming against me, I welcome it. That is not what the Word of God is calling you to in sacrificial submission. Don't do that alone. I want to move now to the roles of men. It may seem like I'm being hard on the men and I'm, I'm, I'm just being hard on the brokenness of what marriage looks like sometimes. Abuse can go the other direction too and men, you should not endure that alone. But I want to talk for a few minutes about our roles. It requires just as much submission to be the servant leader that Christ is calling us to be. In 1 Peter 3, Peter tells us in verse 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What does that mean? It means that we're to know our wives. Really know them. Not just things about them, but know them. Understand them. That we're to honor them and that we're to protect them. That is a calling that the Lord has given us. But all of it is to be done in submission to the Lord himself. Just as the women are called to sacrificial submission, we are called to sacrificial authority. We have been given the responsibility of being the head. But the way in which we see that must be one of sacrificial authority. One of which we see that it is primarily about servant leadership. And who is our model? It's Jesus. And Jesus so beautifully modeled this when he washed the disciples' feet. 
You never see Jesus using his authority to cause people to do things that are demeaning or to worship him in a way. The word of God says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And that's what we're called to do as servant leaders, to give our lives. Being the servant leader doesn't mean because we have the title head that we can be selfish it doesn't mean that we get to pick which color of car. It doesn't mean that we get to alone make decisions without any interest in what our wife might think. Headship is done for the purpose of ministering to your wife and your family always. And it's always from a posture of selflessness. It is sacrificial authority. When we re-enter the Garden of Eden, we see the way it was supposed to be in Genesis 1 and 2. In order to understand how it needs to be now between here and heaven, we need to re-enter another garden, and that's the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in that garden, you hear Jesus talking to his Father and as Jesus speaks to the Father about all that is about to happen, he is demonstrating beautifully sacrificial submission. Father, not my will be done, but yours. And he is demonstrating sacrificial authority. And both of those sacrifices take him to the cross. And there on the cross, our bridegroom dies for us laying down his life that we might live forever. Laying down his life that we might bring God glory and enjoy him forever. So here's what I want to ask you to consider. If you're married, I want to ask you to take some time now, to make sure your definition of marriage, whether you've been married six months or 30 years, is the right definition. And I've already given it to you. Two, I want you to look seriously as husbands about how you can lead your wife and your family to a greater display of God's glory in the midst of your family. I want you, if the marriage is in deep trouble, to admit it and get help. There's counseling available, pastoral and other. There are peers in this congregation who would love to walk with you. You need to get help. 35 books downstairs are available for you to purchase. And reading them will be helpful, but it's probably not enough. Read them in community and see how the Lord might want you to grow. But lastly, it's this. What does your spouse need most from you? They, meet, they need you to abide in Jesus always. 
And abiding is an act of submission. Not where we're just submitting and connecting to Jesus, but where Jesus is infused in us in this union. If things that you've heard today reveal profound brokenness where you know you need help immediately, there are people, including the pastors, with blue name tags who would love to pray with you during this closing anthem and after the service. If that's too hard, you can always call the church. We would love to meet you, and here's why. Marriage is the soil of growing glory. God reveals the power of the gospel so much in the way in which he redeems marriages that seem beyond redemption. Wherever you are, don't give up hope. If you're new, consider what your marriage might be. If you're older and it's dry, pray for what it could be. This is his design. Father, we pray that you would come to this place now. And as we close out our singing with such a beautiful anthem, this crown, crown him with many crowns, our attention is rightly focused upon you and your sacrificial submission and your sacrificial authority. And Lord, we're going to be thinking of your beauty, and that's what we need. Bless us, Lord, now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.